Welcome to the politicalbetting.com Polling Matters podcast. My name is Kieran Pedley. Well, I'm back after having two weeks off and a big thanks to Leo Barassi for taking my place while I was away. I, I listened to both podcasts and I thought they were uh, really, really uh, good conversations uh, with Mark Pack, Connor Pope and Lawrence Yanta Lipinski. So a big thanks to Leo um, for stepping into the sort of... Uh, presenter's chair whilst I was away. Hopefully you enjoyed those episodes and we'll have more from Leo soon in the coming weeks, I'm sure. Um, But whilst I was away, obviously there was a small matter of a snap general election, which certainly caught most people on the the back foot. Um, I'd always argued that Theresa May should call one. It was in her interests to do so, certainly limited um, incentive to wait. But it did seem like, because of the fixed-term Parliament Act and other considerations, that she was unlikely to go to the trouble of calling one. But how wrong, how wrong we were! Um, and here we are now, just what six or seven weeks away from a general election. Um, later on the show, I'll be talking to Chris Hanratty from the University of East Anglia about this, but also about the uh, recent French elections too. But before I uh, introduce my conversation with Chris, I wanted to cover off an Ipsos Mori um, poll today. Now, Ipsos um, have the benefit of having been polling for a very long time, so there's lots of historical um, sort of references or comparisons that you can make. So in Ipsos is voting intention figures. We have the Tories on 49, that's up uh, 6. Labour on 26, which is down 4. Lib Dems on 13, which is no change. Uh, the UKIP on 4, which is down 2. And the Greens on 1, which is down down three. Now, Ipsos are, to my knowledge, the only phone pollster uh, still left uh, using that methodology. So that it, it will be interesting to see how their numbers compare to others. But frankly, the big story really is a 23-point lead for the Conservative Party, which is really means now that we are seeing consistently the Conservatives uh, more than 20 points ahead of Labour. And that really is in landslide territory, if that's... Um, ends up being the result. But this was also an, a historic poll from Ipsos Mori. Um, they've been asking who would make the most capable prime minister for for uh, decades. And uh, Theresa May's score of 61 percentage points compared to Jeremy Corbyn's of 23 um, was a huge gap. And in fact, uh, Theresa May's score of 61 is the largest that Ipsos Mori have um, ever recorded for a prime minister, larger than uh, Margaret Thatcher at her pomp, larger for Tony Blair too. So I think we've gone well beyond the idea now that Theresa May has a mere honeymoon. I think she's just quite popular. Um, it's always hard to extrapolate the differences between whether it's her unpop- her popularity versus Jeremy Corbyn's unpopularity, which is driving these things. Um, but it certainly does seem like the British public are fans uh, of Theresa May. All the numbers that Ipsos ask are whether the public are satisfied or dissatisfied with uh, respective party leaders. Um, some key figures to call out here, 56% satisfied with Theresa May, 37% dissatisfied. But Jeremy Corbyn, 62% dissatisfied. To put that in context, Paul Nuttall has 50% uh, dissatisfied. So with those fundamentals at play, it is really quite difficult to see... Um, anything other than a strong Conservative victory at the upcoming general election. But hey, we've had egg on our faces before, so let's wait and see. But for the bulk of the show, I'm going to be sharing with you a conversation I had earlier this week with Chris Hanratty. I wanted to talk to Chris about the uh, recent French 
presidential election, or at least the first round of that, and what that might mean for French politics. But also, we talked a bit about this general election and what he was looking out for, and just how predictable such a snap event, an unprecedented event, can be. And you're about to hear that conversation now, and here, here it is. So I'm here with Chris Hanratty from the University of East Anglia. Chris, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. So it's been an eventful few weeks, I think fair to say, Chris. Um, Easy to forget, uh, for those of us uh, focused on ourselves, that there was a pretty major election uh, at the weekend in France, wasn't there? I mean, what what are your reactions to some of what we've seen um, over, over across the channel? Well, it was absolutely glorious because for once, and maybe once only this year, we had an election where the outcome was more or less the outcome that people were expecting and that polls were, were <laughs> predicting. I, I feel like that's worthy of a little celebration. I mean, it might be boring, but to have the polls say Macron first, Le Pen second, and have that be the result, that, that's pretty great. And um, it wasn't just in, in impressive in terms of calling the order correctly, although I suppose that was difficult, given that you had four candidates, each within three or four percentage points of another. But some of the the errors were tiny. Mm. I mean, this is really, or should be, cause for celebration amongst French pollsters. Absolutely. It puts us British pollsters under a hell of a lot of pressure (laughs) coming up to to June, doesn't it? Yeah. Is is there any kind of cross-channel rivalry? I don't know. It feels like there should be, doesn't it? It feels like uh, there should be. Sort I think of a... it, it it might be worth creating that sense of rivalry. I think competition can do wonders for for performance. Well, I've got I've got a feeling the French might win this one, um, but, <laughs> but, but, but but who knows? I mean, some yeah, some of the errors in in, in that or lack of errors in, in some of those final call polls were were, were uh, startling, really. Um, I mean, thinking about the politics of it all, I mean, what yeah. does what does the results that we had at the weekend actually tell us about French politics? I suppose the first thing to say is that this isn't the final result, of course. Yeah. Yeah, so we, we've got to talk about you know, what will happen uh, in the second round. But I think in terms of headlines from the first rounds, I think one of, one of the things that many of the UK newspapers led with was this kind of idea of a break in the party system that you know, the socialists got wiped off the electoral map um, and uh, the the right under François Fillon didn't get to the second round in an election where probably at the, the start of the year, as late as February, Fillon was, was still the favourite to win. So I think l- lots of people are saying this is, you know, uh, the end of a two-party system. Um, I guess, though, there's a, a kind of long-standing idea in French politics of some connection to centrism. So we think of, of de Gaulle's idea of the president as being someone who is above parties. Um, you think of, of past French presidents, like Giscard d'Estaing, trying to form a place in the centre. So I think the, the election is hugely disruptive. Um, but it's not impossible to see in Macron some elements of continuity. Mm. And I suppose if we were to look at the so-called traditional parties, I guess the Republicans and the Socialists, each of them have their own maybe unique challenges this wave. I mean, if we look at how unpopular Francois Hollande is as president, but then also 
the scandals that Fionn ha- has experienced as well. Um, obviously, the poll, you know, uh, in terms of performance at the polls, the socialists doing far worse. But I guess in different circumstances, maybe they could have some kind of resurgence. I guess it's hard to know, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it it will probably depend a lot on uh, how the different parties do in the legislative elections, which will follow the second round. But those legislative elections are kind of difficult to predict for the same reasons that a two-round presidential system is difficult to predict. You've got to get the top two right, um, and depending on who the top two in any seat are, the complexion of that race can really change. Mm. Um, So, uh, I mean, I think it would be be hard for the socialists to, to do any worse than they have done, at least in terms of vote share in the legislative elections. Um, and I think the the right will be trying to, to kind of salvage some of its honour by ending up as the largest party in the legislative elections that follow. So I think, that, I mean, here's the, the big area of uncertainty for me is not what will happen in the second round, it's what happens in the legislative elections. Mm. Um, and a lot of people seem to be assuming that it, it would be pretty much impossible for Macron to get enough and as good qualified candidates to stand in the legislative elections in order for his party to, to have a legislative majority. And I think probably having a majority is pushing it, but I think it's not impossible that we could see uh, Macron's Parti en Marche being returned as as the largest party in the Assemblée Nationale. So that's what we've got to to look to. Is this going to be a a presidential administration where the direction of policy is set by Macron and those around him? Or is it going to be uh, much more are much more closely linked to the, the kind of periods of, of cohabitation that we had in the past, where you've got Macron trying to negotiate with a legislative majority that's fundamentally drawn from the centre-right. Mm. So it's those two um, possibilities that uh, I think we need to consider carefully, and that's the the thing that I'd be most uncertain about. I suppose it's worth, for the benefit of people listening to this that maybe aren't, that closely aligned with French politics, it's worth explaining how their system works. So we know, we know that it's a two-round runoff for the presidency. So uh, Macron and Le Pen are now the the two that go back to the country in a week or so's time uh, in the yep. runoff to see who the president is. But h- how does the legislative elections work? Because that's obviously co- completely separate, isn't it? Yeah, I mean it's it's another type of of runoff system. Um, so you get the same kind of dynamics that emerge um, and you'll have obviously different contests um, a- across the country. So you'll have first round election, um, which will identify the, the top two candidates in each constituency. You'll then have the runoffs and you know, in some places that will pit uh, let's say the left against the right. In some places, it will be the mainstream right against the, the Front National. In other places, it might be even more complicated matchups. Sure. So it's it's complicated. Um, perhaps even more difficult to to figure out than than first past the post. Hmm. 
I suppose I don't way... say that lightly. <laughs> yeah, we'll come on to that in a moment. But um, I mean, from what you're from what you're saying, it sounds like despite Le Pen's efforts to try and make the result not seem inevitable, it does seem like you're suggesting that Macron's victory is all but assured in the presidential. Yeah, I mean, I think we've, we've got to be careful how we phrase this. All but assured is a, a nice way of putting it, because um, it, it does convey that it's really, really likely, but obviously it's not impossible for, for Le Pen to win. But I think if if this were any other candidate, and in particular if Le Pen was not a candidate of the, the radical right or not a candidate of the, the Front National, and I know that now she claims, now she stepped down from her role in the party, that she's no longer the candidate of the, the Front National. But if it wasn't Le Pen, if we're talking about an average candidate who was 20 points behind with two weeks to go, we'd write them off. Mm. But people have been so spooked by Brexit and Trump that they're incorrectly generalising from those to other Brexity, Trumpy events. Well, there's a difference between being four points behind and 24 points behind, I suppose, isn't there? Exactly. I mean, it's, it's a kind of a numeracy to say that because this thing happened, this thing can also happen. Because you've got to realise, well, Brexit and Trump, it was a lot closer. I mean, if compare it to the, the poll leads in the UK at the moment. Mm. I mean... We're pretty much writing off Labour's chances of winning, whatever that means, finishing as the largest party. And we're probably right to do that because over the course of an election campaign, it's pretty hard, if not impossible, to recover that kind of, of gap. So I, I think Macron's a prohibitive favourite. Um, I uh, really struggle to imagine now scenarios where he loses. Um, I think you can write off polling failure because I don't know why the polls would be exceptionally accurate in the first round and less accurate in the second. I think people talk too much about differential turnout, about Le Pen's voters being you know, highly mobilised to turnout and everyone else feeling a bit meh because that kind of, the turnout effect, the size of the difference you'd need uh, they're huge. Mm. So once you write those two things off, you've got to ask, what else is there? Well, events, dear boy, events. But it would have to be an almighty scandal uh, for the wheels to come off the Macron campaign. Sure, because the traditional view of the right is that if there's some kind of terrorist attack, that might benefit the right. But, I mean, unfortunately, um, very sadly for France, that's obviously something that's a a consistent feature of French life, it seems, at the moment anyway. I mean, it's hard to see if, if terrorism hasn't led to Le Pen being on sort of 50% in round two yet. It's hard to see why it would all of a sudden do that. Um, thinking more generally, I suppose there are probably lots of people on the left in the UK that are looking at Macron, um, looking at the fortunes of the main opposition party here, the Labour Party, and wondering, hmm, does that mean that a another sort of centrist or centre-left party could emerge victorious over here? Um, I mean, it's always dangerous comparing two completely different countries, isn't it, Chris? But do you think there's any merit in that idea that maybe there could be a new on marsh in the UK? That well, 
Well, so one of the modules that I teach at my university is called comparative politics. So I've got to stick up for the value of comparing countries. <laughs> but I, I would say that it's it's a bit of a stretch to compare presidential contests to ordinary parliamentary contests um, in that the, the character of the candidate matters a lot more for obvious reasons in, in presidential contests. Um so I think it's it's possible to imagine setting up a campaign as Macron has done, which is centred around one person. But it's very different if you've got to recruit candidates up and down the country. Um, so I think, is it a good sign for centrists in the UK? Probably yes. Um, is it going to resolve for them important questions like who would be the leader of this new political force and from where would they draw their candidates? Well, probably not, because those two, those two questions are really tough to answer. Mm. Let's, uh, let's pivot to uh, closer to home then. Um, yeah. you, you alluded to earlier that you know, the gap between um, the candidates in France is similar to, to the gap between the, candidate, the main two candidates in, in the UK, maybe not quite the same, but similar. So does that mean we can write off this election then? I mean, the tone seems to be assumption of Theresa May landslide. Um, but then, of course, this is a snap election. We've seen them backfire in the past. No evidence of that at the moment. But are we right to kind of say that's all she wrote almost with this election? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I suppose uh, well, you're, not, you're not sympathetic to the idea that, well, polls have been wrong before. Turnout could be really low, maybe. Maybe that sort of hurts Theresa May, maybe Tories don't bother showing up because they think it's in the bag. None of that seems to... So all of, all of these are possible factors. All right? So it, it might be that pollsters got so stung by 2015 that they end up overcorrecting and they end up underestimating Labour and overestimating the Conservatives. It might be that um, somehow... Some weird, funky pattern of turnout means that Labour vote shares on the day are up. It might be that constituency by constituency, Labour just squeak it and end up winning seats that were slightly out of their, their target ranges. All of these factors matter, and you know, there's a reason why we have to wait for this campaign to finish and people to cast their actual votes. All these factors matter, but they're not going to matter that much. Mm. I mean, it would have to be an incredible combination of things that you would need to happen for Corbyn to, well, what are we saying, Corbyn to, Corbyn's Labour to finish as largest in terms of vote share, largest in terms of sheet seats? I couldn't I see that. I just can't see it. Yeah, I mean, like, the, only, the only comparison I can make, and it's, it's a very different context, is... 2001 where was it 2001 where the no, 2005 was the one with the turnout that was really low wasn't it um but you know 2001 didn't change much from 1997 and i suppose the the worst case scenario as i can see it is that the tories only win by seven or eight because turnout's really low but i mean you're clutching at straws a lot particularly considering that, that that welsh poll yesterday which i thought was unbelievable yeah i mean some some of the leads have have been incredible but i mean even turnout I mean, given what we know about the average age of the Conservative voter relative to the average age of Labour voters, 
And given that we know that older age groups vote at higher rates, if there is a slump in turnout, that seems to me like it would disproportionately hurt Labour. So even even some of the straws that Labour supporters might grasp for mm. uh, aren't really going to help them. I mean, I, I do have to say that turnout is one of these really tricky things to to rely on because it's one of these things where uh, people consistently, well, I wouldn't say lie, but they do exaggerate their propensity to turn out. I was just looking at the, the British election study earlier and looking at their questions on turnout and whether or not people said that they would turn out to vote. And of course, in the, uh, I think the, the pre-election wave, it was some, something like 80%, 83% of respondents said, oh yes, I'm going to vote. So there's a lot of, of over-reporting mm. uh, when it comes to turnout, and that makes it really problematic to draw any inferences about it. So if we assume then that you know Theresa May is going to be Prime Minister, I think it's a safe assumption, Theresa May is going to be yep. Prime Minister after the next election, um, there's two broad schools of thought that I've seen uh, around. One is that maybe she increases her majority, but it's not, it's not astonishing. Maybe it's like 20 or 30 seats. Now you can leave to one side whether that is astonishing or not for a governing party to be doing. But the point is that it's not maybe the, the landslide that we, that we might expect. And there are others now that are saying, no, this is going to be, a dam's going to burst in Labour's support, and there's going to, we're talking about three-figure majorities. Is your gut instinct more towards the latter than the former with, uh, uh, with that? I, I think it is, yeah. Um, I mean, I've been looking... Uh, again, the British election study data, and when you break things down by vote intention in Labour-held seats, then the the Labour share of the vote seems down, not just by levels that match what we know from the national polling, but down a little bit more than that. So I think there's a a real risk that Labour will end up somewhere in the, the kind of the 150 to 170, 180 seats. So there, there's a chance that they could uh, outperform uh, the Conservatives in 1997 and finish with fewer than the, the I think 165 seats mm. that the Conservatives got in 1997. Yeah. So I, I'm more of that second school of thought. I do have to say that. A lot can still happen, but I think if if I were uh, a Labour supporter, I'd be very, very worried. I suppose if we look beyond Labour and the Conservatives, which is obviously the traditionally important battle, there are mm. lots of interesting subplots, aren't there, with some of the smaller parties. I mean, what are you looking out for? I mean, I'm curious about the SNP myself, but then lots of people are expecting big things from the uh, Liberal Democrats as well, aren't they? Yeah, and I'm kind of... Uh, a bit bearish on Lib Dem chances in that I I think they're going to get under 18, uh, under 20, something like that. Mm. Um, uh, I mean, I think they face a bit of a, a, a tactical dilemma in that there's a big clump of seats in the southwest that they lost to the Conservatives, and that was one of the, the geographic routes through which the Conservatives reached their majority. So they'd like to get those seats back. Uh, but the problem with those seats is that they're rural, leave-leaning seats. And so the, the kind of message that you want to target those seats is very, very different 
from the kind of oh let's stop Brexit or stop hard Brexit and sweep up Labour votes in highly educated urban areas. So they, uh, I think they've they've got a bit of a a dilemma, and even if they were able to say okay we're going to concentrate on let's say the the remain voting areas, there's just it would require an awful lot and it would require swings of the kind that you would expect uh, would lead them to, to be further up in national polling. So if they're not doing better in national polling by the day of the election, it would be hard to expect them to achieve the swings that they need. Hmm. And it's hard to imagine what set-piece event, given that Theresa May is uh, opposed to the debates, whatever that means, although we might have something... Um, would actually lead to that I agree with, in this case, Tim moment. How important do you think Tim Farron is? I mean, logic states that he's going to be really important, but actually all the polling suggests that people don't really have a very strong opinion on him, partly because they haven't really seen much of him because of the Liberal Democrats' uh, lesser position in Parliament. I mean, are they just a kind of almost protest party of the left and Tim Farron is almost irrelevant in this? or, Or do you think it's really, really important, actually, that he gets out there and becomes much more of a national player? Uh, I mean, I think it, it would be helpful for them if, this is going to sound really obvious and trivial, it would help them a lot if they had a leader who was able to burst onto the scene and capture people's attention. I don't think Tim Farron's going to do that. Um, so if he remains an unknown quantity, does he drag them down? Probably not. They just probably bumble along. Um, but I think you're absolutely right. In the absence of a set piece, um, they presumably will get a little bump as a result of increased exposure when the broadcasters switch on to election footing um, and start getting out the stopwatches to measure how long different parties have been on screen. So I think they'll get a little bump in exposure from that. But they're, I think they're limited. They're, they're, there's a kind of limited upside for them. Let's finish with um, with Scotland because you know, yeah. it's easy to forget with all the hullabaloo in the last sort of couple of weeks that really the big story in the background, or not even in the background, seems to be this idea of a second independence referendum. Mm. But then you've got a real resurgence for the Tories in Scotland, haven't you, uh, led by Ruth Davidson. So, I mean, what what are you looking out for there? I mean, are the SNP likely to be losing seats? I guess they, I mean, there's not much to gain, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's a, a terrible trap that they laid themselves in 2015 by winning <laughs> so heavily. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, the, uh, if you believe the most recent Scottish polling, then the Conservatives could, could win up to 12 further seats in Scotland, which would be pretty astonishing. Um, even if, in retrospect, it kind of makes sense, we've seen this polarisation of the Scottish electorate on, around the theme of, of independence, and the Conservatives have made a name for themselves as the, the most pro-union party, uh, even if some of uh, Conservative MPs in uh, England tend to forget that from time to time. So it it makes sense if if you reconfigure Scottish politics along a pro or anti-independence axis, then one of those sides is going to get its 
its act together, um, and I think that's what the Conservatives are are doing. I mean, I think 12 seats more, that's probably optimistic, um, because some of the SNP majorities are ridiculously large. But I think you're going to see an increase in the number of Conservative seats that will be used by the Conservatives as um, an argument against another independence referendum, because well, the Conservatives seem to, to want to force the SNP to jump through arbitrary hoops in order to claim a mandate. Um, so there'll be a battle over the interpretation of the election results. So as with most things in Scottish politics over the past three years, everything is going to be interpreted um, in the key of independence. Mm. Well, certainly, um, all the lots of big issues that will very much not be resolved by the, the election in June, even though it does seem to be a very... It seems like it's going to be a very good night for the Conservatives. But uh, Chris Hanratty, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. That was Chris Hanratty from the University of East Anglia. A big thanks to Chris for joining us once again on the Polling Matters podcast. Certainly lots to uh, chew over there, but Chris seems confident that the uh, Conservative Party will emerge with a thumping um, majority in landslide territory, maybe a three-figure majority um, after the election in June. Certainly feels like that's the direction of travel at the moment. But will it change uh, over the course of the campaign? I guess we'll have to um, wait and see. And he's also uh, very correct to bring up the, uh, to celebrate the um, positive story of the French pollsters getting things absolutely spot on in what we should say was a very, very closely contested uh, first round of the presidential race. So we'll be looking to um, we're looking to speak to some French pollsters in the coming weeks to see how they did it and to thank them for the amount of pressure they've put us under over here coming into June. Um, on that note, uh, GFK uh, should be, as my company, should be having at least one poll out during the uh, general election short campaign. We're very close to agreeing a partnership with a, a sort of news organisation, which we should be in a position to announce uh, quite soon. So stay tuned um, for that. But for the rest of the podcast, I wanted to unveil some of the latest polling matters, opinion numbers, um, regular listeners to the podcast will know that uh, we work closely with Opinion to produce uh, polling um, around government and politics. Not horse race numbers, but trying to unpick um, what's going on underneath and try to try to understand in more detail um, which way the wind is blowing in public opinion. And there's uh, three questions I want to uh, describe to you today. I had hoped to be joined by um, Robert Vance to talk them over. Um, but unfortunately, we couldn't get the uh, sort of scheduling to work. So I'll take you through them myself. Um, we asked three questions. We asked how closely um, people were following the election campaign. We asked what the most important issues would be in deciding their vote. And then we also asked which of the party leaders would be uh, trusted most to negotiate Brexit. And this was a survey that took place over the pre last weekend, so the 21st to the 24th of April. 2006 uh, interviews with UK adults. This was online, nationally representative as usual. So to go through some of the figures then, so the first question we said was, as you may know, the Prime Minister Theresa May has called a general election for June the 8th. How closely are you following the election campaign? So 23% said very closely, 38% said fairly closely, 
27% said not very closely, and 9% said not following it at all. And 1%, some 25 respondents said, I didn't know there was a general election on June the 8th. Um, 35, uh, and 2% said, uh, don't know. So a big shout out to that sort of 3% that either didn't know there was an election or don't know how closely they're following it. But what this means is 61% say that they're following the election closely at the moment. 36% say they're not or they're not following it at all. So that felt quite high. And uh, we'll be tracking that over the course of the campaign to see how that changes. But there are some interesting uh, cross breaks here. 75% of conservative voters say that they're following the election closely compared to 66% of Labour voters Um you could forgive a Labour voter for not following this election closely, I suppose. But I wonder if that's indicative of enthusiasm on the Conservative side. And when we talk about turnout and maybe whether or not uh, Conservatives will get complacent, these numbers suggest at least that that might not be the case. Another interesting crossbreak, which I definitely want to monitor, is looking at the Remain and Leave vote, though. 70% of Remain voters say they're following the election closely, 30% very closely, whereas only 59% of Leave voters told our poll that they're following the election closely, 21% very closely. So I do wonder whether there is something in this idea that that the Leave vote was delivered by lots of traditional non-voters who may also not vote at this general election, and uh, I wonder what impact that might have on the uh, eventual result. Moving on to uh, some of the other questions, we asked uh, which of the following are the most important factors to you when considering how you will vote in the upcoming general election? Now, we asked a number of different um, answer choices here. Um, I offered them nine different uh, sort of potential choices. Um, And the top three were who will negotiate the best Brexit deal as Britain leaves the EU, 38%. Uh, said that was a factor they were considering and how they would vote. 37%, almost as many, said which party I think will form the most effective government overall. And in third place, which party has the best policies on the NHS with 31%. So those were the three issues that more than 30% of British adults said that uh, would be important in, in, in their considerations on how they would vote. Some of the other issues were which party has the most policies I like, which party has the best economic policies, so maybe not the economy stupid this time which party has the best policies on immigration which party will promise to stop brexit only 14 percent chose that uh 38 of liberal democrats and whether theresa may or jerry corbyn will be the next prime minister was 13 percent. so i guess maybe there's an assumption there that uh, theresa may will be and then which party has the best education policies so we tested a a variety of different a variety of different options here and and what we ultimately found was it seems to be an issue of competence, elections are ever thus, but also who will negotiate the best Brexit deal as Britain leaves the EU. These were the most important issues. Now, if we look at some of the, the cross breaks, it won't surprise you that for Conservative voters, the uh, Brexit issue is the number one. But for Labour voters, it's the NHS, actually. 53% of Labour voters say which party has the best policies on the NHS is the most important uh, in deciding uh, their vote. Similarly, uh, if we look at Remain and Leave voters, it won't be surprising that Leave voters are overwhelmingly uh, motivated by uh, the Brexit question. Remain voters, uh, less so. Remain voters, the top two for them are the competence question, which party... Uh, will form the most effective government overall. 40% of Remain voters say that's a factor in deciding how they'll vote. And then second for Remain voters is the NHS. So we see uh, an interesting picture there, perhaps not not surprising, 
but ultimately Brexit is front and centre of how people are deciding to vote. And I guess then finally on that question, uh, who would you trust more to negotiate Britain's withdrawal from the EU? Theresa May, 51%, Jeremy Corbyn, 13%, don't know, 14%, neither, 22%. So a pretty clear uh, lead there, 38 points uh, for Theresa May over Jeremy Corbyn. And that probably tells you just about everything you need to know about this election. Brexit's the number one issue. Theresa May is trusted to deal with it. If we look at the Remain and Leave vote, 69% of Leavers trust Theresa May uh, more. 7% trust Jeremy Corbyn. With Remain voters, 40% trust Theresa May more. 20% trust Jeremy Corbyn. So twice as many Remain voters trust uh, Theresa May as trust Jeremy Corbyn. So I don't want to beat around the bush too much on some of those numbers. I don't think they'll be hugely surprising to you. But I guess when we try and assess whether we think there could be a shock, could be a surprise in this in this election, we really have to factor in the fact that not only are the Conservatives 20-odd points ahead in the polls, and we're right to be cautious about uh, analysing those numbers, when you poll about what the big issues are and who are trust, who is trusted to deal with them, you know, the biggest issue is Brexit. Theresa May is the person trusted to deal with that. And we add that to the more generic question about competence. Who's the best prime minister? How satisfied are you with the party leaders? It's Theresa May, Theresa May, and Theresa May again. And uh, it does certainly seem at the moment like she was absolutely right, at least in her interests, to, to call uh, a snap general election. Now, there are several weeks to go in the general election campaign, so we will see um, what happens but it is really, really difficult to see how people will reappraise Jeremy Corbyn to such an extent in such a uh, short period of time. But that's all we've got time for uh, for this week's uh, Political Betting Polling Matters podcast. A big thanks to Chris Hanratty uh, for joining me uh, today. It was a really great conversation, very grateful to him. The music you're about to hear is Happy Days by Ian Holmes, licensed under a Creative Commons. And stay tuned for more uh, polling matters podcast in the coming weeks where we'll have more guests more round table discussions uh, next week uh, as we look ahead to the upcoming general election but also the upcoming the second round of the french president presidential election and more <laughs>